Revelation chapter 1, and uh, really excited about sharing with you tonight, and uh, it's been a great week. I've just really enjoyed being here, and uh, it's just been pretty fantastic. I want to continue with where we've been looking at, and uh, super quick recap. John, uh, uh, as he writes the first chapter, is writing as an introduction to these seven churches in the province of Asia, and those seven churches are listed in chapters 2 and 3. That's where we're going to be at tonight. Uh, but the first chapter, John is trying to prepare these seven churches for the prophecy. He's saying, hey, I was, I was called by God to write down this prophecy, and I'm, I'm going to present this to you. I want to take this opportunity and give the first chapter to introduce to you this prophecy. And there's a couple of key things that he wants to introduce. The first and foremost, and it applies to them and it applies to you and I, you and I are called to partner with God. Period. See, I, I'm coming to the point where I'm really strong on this. There is no such thing as the guy that just comes to church on Sunday that's not bad, it's not evil. He, he, I mean, he's a part of the church and in terms of has a membership, he sends a check even when he's not there. I hear that one all the time. And I don't always make it on Sunday, but I give him my check. <laughs> Man, I mean, hey, great, we'll take your check. But, you know, that's not the whole point. See, the whole point is that you are called to participate in what God is doing. I mean, you are an invaluable part to his kingdom. I mean, that's really so significant. Um, I was led to Christ in 1995. I, uh, I'm 6'4", about 2 uh, to 25. And when I was uh, kicked out of the Marine Corps in 1995, I was 6'4", weighed about a little over 130 pounds. And uh, I was a drug addict, had a meth problem. I wasn't a Christian. And I uh, was an evil guy, just liked to party, and drugs ruled my life. And they caught me and kicked me out of the Marine Corps, and Christian family took me in their home. And it was the first time in my life I saw someone live on Sunday the same way they did on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And it was just, it was overwhelming to me. And I stayed with them for about a month, and at the end of that month, I said, whatever you've got going on in your life, I want going on in mine. And I've got to have that. And they were instrumental they were used by God, and they saw themselves not as just people who attend church, but as people who were launched out from the church every week in full-time ministry, and they partnered in the church. That's Christianity. That's how you and I are called to live. You and I are called every day to go outside of our homes and launched out in a mission field where we come back, and here's where we're encouraged. And I got in a conversation with a couple of people this week about revival, and, and I got real aggressive with one individual. I said, you need to be here, Period. This is your revival. This is the time of the year where your church comes together and says, we're going to set apart these, these period of days and say, God, I want you to move in my life. I'm going to become vulnerable. And I'm going to, I'm going to set myself before you and have you speak in your word. And I'm going to be stretched and grown. And, and how can I plug in? And how can I be a part? See, literally, you and I are called to partner with God. So that's really significant, and he stretches that, uh, stresses that in this first chapter. And we, we kind of looked at that this week. We looked at uh, one of the one of you. For, I, I forget your name, and I don't even see you, but uh, I know you're here. Uh, she put on our website that the the three callings: the universal call, the uncommon call, and the unique call. That God has handpicked us and called us, and has a purpose for our life. I mean, that's so significant. I mean, that makes you just stand up a little straighter and go, man. That's what I'm talking about. I am significant. I mean, that's what really blew me away as a young Christian. As, as I grew up, Jeremiah is my name. I grew up and, and uh, going to Kmart. At that time, Kmart was the big deal And when I was a kid. You always had the license plate you put on your bike. 
Jeremiah was never an option. So I had to settle for Jerry or uh, Carl or something. Because, I mean, sir, Jeremiah was never an option. Tammy, my sister, was sorry. Kimberly, Kim, John, all my buddies, Trent, even Trent had his own. I, I never had. Jeremiah was never an option. So it was, it was terrible. When I became a Christian, opened the Bible, I thought, there's a book in there with my name on it. You know? It's kind of like I'm this, I've been justified after all this time. And so I opened up the book of Jeremiah, and I read that. And the opening of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a priest. God comes to him and says, listen, Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. <laughs> I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, I literally, it's over and over and over and over and over throughout the scriptures. God speaks to you and I and says, hey, before you were born, I appointed you for this hour. You are not by chance. See, I, I don't believe that it's just by chance that you were here this week. I don't think it's by chance that you sat here and God went on the end of your nose on a couple of things and you walked out there going, wow, that was an ordained time by God. He says that to these seven churches. Now, when you get into the seven churches, we looked at this this week. There's a, there's a specific way in which he addresses each church. There's a structure, if you will, to the way he addresses each church. Uh, he comes and he presents himself as the answer to what their context, what their, what their issue is. Everybody has a different context. Uh, some people are married. Some people are not married. Some people are male. Some people are female. Uh, some people have jobs. Some people don't have jobs. You've got all of these different, you know, contexts of life, okay? Blue collar, white collar, whatever kind of work. Jesus presents himself as the answer to your specific context of life. Okay? So in other words, he wants to come and invade your context. He knows all about it. He knows where you live. In fact, he stuck you there to partner with him. That's the most significant thing. It's not by chance where you're where you're at for a reason. Okay? He's literally stuck you in that context and he wants to invade that because he wants to bring about a result. As the test as, as, as she testified tonight, literally, you're to live in that posture. Hey, I, I literally want you to bring about the result that you want. And I, I admit, and I, hey, I, I admit fully that I cannot bring about the result that only you can bring about. So I can't do that. I can't do that. How, how significant is all that? Um, in other words, how, how, real, how important is it to have that kind of perspective on life? See, when you come into chapters 2 and 3... You got these seven churches, and I want to look with you tonight at, at uh, Smyrna. Brand new study. Just finished this up this morning, as a matter of fact. And I think it's ready to present. I've been toying with it for the last couple of days and kind of mulling over it. Smyrna is a really interesting, a really interesting church. There's a perspective change. Now hear this. There's a perspective change that Jesus wants to bring about in their life. See, they're they're not living with this kind of perspective. They have an opposite perspective. And one of the things I've been finding as I've been going through and studying in the, in the Word, I've been finding, now this is really aggressive, that when you get in the New Testament, you have one or two options in life. One of two. Okay? There's one of two perspectives. There's one of two people to serve. There's one or two groups you can find. You're either going to belong to Jesus, operate and resource out of Him, live in His perspective, or you're going to live in the perspective of the enemy. So you're going to have a Christian perspective or a satanic perspective, period. Now, again, that's really black and white. And no one likes black and white, except for me. Uh, but, hey, you're either going to operate in a Christian perspective or a satanic perspective. And you'd say, well, come on, that's kind of black and white. There's no gray in that. See, Jesus says on that, on that day, on, on, you know, hey, on the day of judgment, 
He's going to divide them up into how many groups? Two. Two groups. He's going to take the sheep, put them over here, and he's going to put the goats over there. There's not going to be like wildebeest over in the corner somewhere, okay? It's not going to be three groups. It's going to be one of two groups. Hey, are you a sheep or are you a goat? That's just how it is. There's one of two groups. Are you going to belong to Jesus or are you going to belong to the enemy? And see, and again, I've met people all my life, all my life in church, I've heard and been taught. This wasn't taught in school. This wasn't taught in Sunday school class. But all my life, I've just picked up that you all think, and probably not, obviously not your church, but all the other churches in the world, it seems like there are people that go to church that believe there's this third group. Okay, Jeremiah, I'm not exactly the way I should be. I'm not perfect. Who is? And I mean, sure, I've got sin in my life and rebellion, and I don't go to church like I should, but I don't worship Satan. So I'm just kind of... Remember we talked... See, that's the trailer court in heaven. It's not a mansion, but it's the trailer court area. See, that's not biblical, folks. I can't find that in the scriptures. You either belong to him or not. You're going to live in his perspective or you're not. You're going to be used by him or you're not. And even the best of people who are not Christian, still belong to the enemy, man. In fact, many on that day, people who go to church, they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is getting in the kingdom of heaven. Because it's not just about good, moral, productive members of society who go to church on Sunday and give money to support the cause. That's not Christianity. I really got interested in the sin of Adam. And... Um, Oftentimes, we look at sin as stuff like sexual immorality. Uh, we look at sin as like uh, murder, taking people's lives. I mean, child molestation. We look at it as thieves and, and, and violent. That kind of stuff was sin. You understand a lot of the stuff that's talked about in the scripture? Yeah, that is sin. But religious stuff can be sin. And oftentimes, sin is not is so Satan can dress it up. Christian perspective, satanic perspective. Satan comes to Adam in the garden, says, hey, starts tempting him. It's interesting. He doesn't tempt him by saying, hate God. Doesn't do that. He doesn't even say, serve me. He just says, listen, what's God's perspective of the tree? Not a bad perspective, but just here's an alternate one. And he dupes Adam into his perspective of the tree. It's not evil, but how do you define evil? Tried the same thing with Jesus, the temptations in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke. And I was amazed at that. See, Jesus gets tempted. And I, I looked at those temptations as a, as a young Christian and thought, why can't I get tempted like that? That's just a wimpy temptations. I mean, Satan comes and says, turn these stones into bread. That's terrible to be tempted like that. Wow. Is sharing some of my temptations. But see, how do, you, how do you interpret what's temptation? He comes to him and says, throw yourself down. See, all of that is, see, Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. What's, what's the enemy tempting him with? The enemy is tempting him with literally sustaining his own life. And Jesus says, hey, my life is not sustained by what I can produce. He provides for me. Man does not live by bread alone, but the only word that comes from the mouth of God. See, it wasn't bad. But how do you interpret that? See, Satan comes so subtle. Just He's not going to tell you to hate God. In fact, one of the interesting things I find in the church is most of the people in church, okay, we got a study. We didn't get to it this week. It's, it's actually, uh, it's called Ephesus Spiritual Drift. 
And it's the, we, we have three studies in, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. One's Ephesus spiritual drift, one is spiritual posture, and one is uh, the one we looked at last night. We didn't get to the spiritual drift one, apologize. But the whole deal with Ephesus is they, they've been around for a long time. They represent the demographic in the church that has been there their entire life. Most people that have been to church that are that been to church for 40 years, you're not going to wake up one morning and just commit apostasy. You're not going to wake up one morning and go, ah, what have I been doing for 40 years? He doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden just go off. And, that's not probably not going to happen. But what's going to happen is you're going to get a different perspective. You're going to drift into a different perspective of Christianity. You just drift from him. You get stale. You get grumpy. You get bitter. You get, you just drift. And see, I, I'm absolutely convinced that. See, the enemy comes and off, he doesn't tempt me with hating Jesus. He doesn't tempt me with going out and, and, and cheating on my wife. He doesn't tempt me with robbing a bank. I just, it's subtle stuff. It's just, hey, here, here's an alternate perspective. I'm finding that Jesus comes to the church at Smyrna and he says, it's so interesting. Jesus comes and he says, you're not bad. You just, you don't have the right perspective. And what's worse is it's a satanic perspective. And they're, they're, as if there's only two, you can have the perspective of Jesus or the perspective of the enemy. Okay. And I know you're looking at me going, come on, let me walk you through this. It's really interesting. Uh, Ephesus chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 11, I'll read this and then we'll walk through it. We're looking at the whole entire passage in one setting. Verse 8, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the truth. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For him who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. He comes to the church, and the first thing that he deals with them on is the same thing that Paul talks about in Romans. It's this transformation of your mind. So he literally says, hey, I want to present to you. See, Ephesus, or excuse me, Smyrna, you, you're living in this perspective. He's going to break it to them that it's a satanic perspective. But the first thing that he presents to them is his perspective. See, here's where you're living, the way you see things. They're going to learn in a minute that it's satanic. But here's where you're living. Here's how you see things. Let me present to you to a whole different perspective. See, this is how I see your circumstance. This is where I'm leading. This is where I'm guiding. This is how I define overcoming. See, this is how I define victory. This is what I see taking place. He presents that to them. For instance, look at this. It's so easy to see. He comes to Smyrna, and the first thing he says is, after he says, I'm the first and the last, verse 9, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty. Yes, I've been here in the midnight prayer meetings. Good night. <laughs> I've been hearing that. Everyone's talking about, oh, it's difficult, man, it's suffering. Oh, you know, and they're just, they're going through. And you do, you can go back and look at the, the cultural setting and the circumstances in which Smyrna is in. It's, it was brutal. It was brutal where they were living. I mean, it's horrific, the day in which they lived. I mean, terrible, terrible, terrible. Jesus says, yes, 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 yes. I'm concerned, but let me present to you another, uh, another perspective. Yet you are rich. I know your affliction and poverty. Here's another perspective. You're rich. 
He goes on to the next verse, or the end of that verse. He says, I know the slander of those who, now get this, say they are Jews. Let me give you another perspective of them. In fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. It's alternate perspective. They say they're Jews. But let me tell you how I see them. It's a different perspective. They belong to Satan, man. He goes on. He says, verse 10, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Important word. In fact, he says, I'll tell you about some of the physical things that you're going to suffer. You're all concerned about suffering. Oh, the persecution. Well, let me just go and let you in, in on what you're going to be facing. Hey, some of you are going to be uh, put in prison by the devil to test you. You're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Hey, even some of you are going to experience death. But here's how I see it. You're going to get the crown of life. You are literally experiencing what I call life. It's an alternate perspective. And he says, by the way, you are all bothered about the first death, about experiencing death. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes won't be hurt at all by the second death. See, my perspective is, listen, folks, every one of us are going to die. We're all going to die, okay? So you just go, okay, I can deal with that. We're all going to die. But his, see, yeah. You're going to get over it. I mean, hey, it's going to be bad, and yeah, and it's going to be fine. But Christianity, death is just a rite of passage, folks. It's just a rite of passage. You say, how do you know? Oh, I wish we had time to go in some of our studies in, in Acts. We're literally, death has no power over you. And the illustration that's used in Acts chapter 2, verses 19 through 24 is that Jesus went down to the, gra the grave and death literally could not hold him. The pains of death could not hold him. The Greek word for pains is in the feminine gender, which tells you it's the pains that only women can feel, which has to do with what kind of pains? Childbirth. And it gives, he's giving you this visual image. And, and the image is one scholar said, and it's beautiful, just as a woman cannot hold on to her baby in childbirth, neither can death hold on to the Christian. Whoa. <laughs> I figured you'd be excited about that. That's great truth. That's, that was the punchline. See, look, I mean, hey, it's a rite of passage, man. Everybody's going to die. Hey, everybody's going to die. It's a rite of passage. You need to be, here's, a, here's an alternate perspective, he says, about death. You're all concerned about suffering. You're all concerned about persecution. Hey, crown of life. Oh, by the way, you're afraid of dying. Don't sweat it. There's a second death. So as you go through this entire passage, he tells Smyrna, see, the things you're worried about, you shouldn't be worried about. See, the things you're all, you're all consumed with, you shouldn't be consumed with those things. One of the things I'm finding, and this, is, this irritates me in my own spiritual life, the things that are eternal don't seem to bother me as much as the things that don't matter tomorrow. Seriously, just me and what I struggle with. I get bent out of shape over things that I'll forget about in a week. And yet it seems like eternal things don't bother me. See, my neighbor, if I had one consistently, who leaves trash, <laughs> my neighbor who leaves trash in my, my area of the lawn bothers me worse than he's dying and going to hell. Seriously. See, the lady that's falling apart emotionally has had a bad day and messes up my order. See, my food order bothers me that she messed it up, bothers me more than the fact that she is a frail, fragile, falling apart woman who desperately needs Jesus. He convicts me over stuff like that. My, my priorities have gotten out of whack in my life at times. Why? Perspective. 
I mean, she said it beautifully. How do I live my world? I'm not bad and I'm not evil, but I get all, I get all wrapped up into things that just don't matter. They do not matter. And the things that he's all about, bothered about, the things that he gets excited about, the things that get him going, I never think twice about. They just... See, it's priorities kind of stuff. He comes to Smyrna, he says, the things that you're bothered about, come on. You're living with an entire... In fact, one of the things that I've found about the book of Revelation, if you go through the book of Revelation with a satanic perspective, and you say, what do you mean by satanic perspective? The satanic perspective of, of living in this world for what this world desires, the physical kind of temporal, non-eternal salvation plan. If you're just consumed with this world's kind of stuff, you're going to interpret the book of Revelation entirely different than the way he intended to be understood. Let me give you an example of this. Turn over with me. This is an extremely brisk walk. You come into chapter 4. Okay, the seven churches have already been addressed. John's carried up into the heavenlies. Chapter 4, in a nutshell, John walks up into the, he, he's carried up into this throne room scene. God, don't try to read it. <laughs> don't try to read it. I'll just explain it to you. God is on his throne. The Holy Spirit's enveloping. You've got 24 elders surrounding the throne and these crazy looking four creatures who know, no offense, who have no idea what they look like. It's really weird who they are and what they serve. We haven't really dealt with that material yet. But they're all there in the throne room and they're all praising and glorifying God. It's a, it's a whole scene of praise. Chapter 4 ends. You come into chapter 5, John looks more closely and he says, hey, what is that? In God's right hand, he has a scroll. And on that scroll are how many seals? Seven. You're sharp. He has seven seals on that thing. And all of a sudden he realizes, I wonder what that is. An angel stands up and basically says, hey, this is the plan of God, the redemptive plan of God for the entire world, Adam's race. Who is able to receive the scroll, open the seals, and let's get this thing underway? No one is found that's worthy. Okay, John begins to weep. One of the elders comes over, smacks him on the back of the head and says, hey, pull yourself together, man. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome and he's able to receive the scroll and, and, and literally the plan can now pour through him. So Jesus comes, receives, are you with me? Jesus comes, receives the scroll and he begins to pluck off the seals and all praise and worship extends to him. Come into chapter six. Chapter 6 is actually the details of when he begins to pluck off the seals. Every time he plucks off a seal, an event takes place on earth. Okay? And so he goes through all these seals. If you, if you skim through chapter 6 and chapter 7, you have the first six seals that are, that are plucked by Jesus and the events of God take place. When you come into chapter 8, the seventh seal is plucked and you have these seven trumpets that, that commence. And with the seven trumpets, you have three specific woes. And you would say, what's a woe? Well, a woe is where you look at the events and go, whoa. <laughs> okay. That's a woe. Okay, basically. That's really close to the actual term. You have these seven trumpets, which are judgments, and three of them are these woes. Now, folks, if you go through, this, this is ir irritating to me. I don't want to be critical. I'm a 36-year-old young man. I mean, don't, how don't you have my master's finished? Okay finished and yet i look at sometimes some phds i'm recording this we probably shouldn't say this on record but i look at some phds sometime and think what are you thinking and they go into chapters eight and nine and all they can point out and all they can talk about in my opinion is a satanic perspective you say what do you mean oh they're talking about end times judgments and and you and they're and it's it's brutal some of this stuff you say what do you mean brutal look down with me at one of these one of these woes 
You have in chapter 9, I mean, he's talking about the fifth angel you read there in verse 1, pops his seal. Um, Verse uh, 2, the abyss is open, smoke, like a giant furnace comes out. I mean, the sun's darkened. It's just this huge event. Out of this, verse 3, these locusts come. They're armed for battle. They look like scorpions. And uh, they're given instruction not to hurt anybody that belongs to God or that is surrendered to God. Verse 5, uh, so they were given power. They were not given power to kill anybody but to torture for five months. You come down to verse 6. is during those days men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Come into verse 7, he starts getting into detail about these things, these locusts, and describing these demonic kind of people, how they uh, um, wore on their heads crowns of gold, they had men's faces, verse 8, hair like woman's hair, and uh, their teeth were like lion's teeth, verse 9, they breastplates of iron, they have wings, and they're dressed like horses for battle, I mean, just, and talks about their stingers, verse 10, they had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. Uh, They have a king over them and talked about in verse 11. You come down to verse 12 and it says, that's just the first woe. (laughs) This is the first one. And they get worse as you go along. You're like, good night. But you understand, people read that and go, oh, the end times are going to be terrible. The end times are going to be tough. And you come down to verse 20 of chapter 9 and listen to this. This is the alternate perspective. Verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. Which tells you, what was the motivation for all that? Repentance. See, you come into the book of Revelation and God in the last days is going to press. He is going to go after the ungodly and he is going to do everything in his power that, to, to press them to turn to him. It's the idea that, man, I mean, you are going to have to go dragging you're going to have to go kicking and screaming to hell in order to get away from him. I do. I, I don't believe Jesus, and I believe I can support this biblically. I don't think Jesus sends anybody to hell. I think people choose hell over him. I think he will chase you all the way to your grave, putting roadblocks in your path, bloodying your nose, putting in, your li- putting in circumstances in your life that you're just... And, and it literally says all the way through, people will turn and curse him. Why? Because he's not going to let you go there unless you... Abs- I mean, they are gonna, if they go to hell, they're going to go there beaten, bloodied, and bruised. That's how much God loves you. He's not going to let you just walk into hell, turn and say, I don't want you to walk into hell. He's, you're going to say, I don't want you, and he's going to stand in your path and say, try to get through me. <laughs> alternate perspective. It's an alternate perspective. See, Revelation is not about... and It, it sickens me. See, they turn our God into this, oh, what's the last days? God getting evil, even with all the evil people of the world. That is demonic. That is a satanic perspective of that book. What's the book of Revelation about? Oh, God's flying planes into buildings. My God does not do that, people. My God does not kill innocent babies and innocent people. That was Muslims. That was terrorists. That was not Jesus. That wasn't Jesus. He does not do that. Just You can't go back into their day to Herod killing babies and say, that's what God does in Bethlehem. No. God does not do that. Well, then how do you explain some of these events? God is giving, literally, God gives the, the, the ungodly free reign and, and, and literally they're destroying themselves and he buffers their choices so it does not produce full-blown death in their life. 
And he literally, that's what happened to my life, and he brings them to a place where they're absolutely destitute in hopes that they'll turn and look up, and some do. So you have an alternate perspective. It's not God getting even with the, with, with the world. It's God radically trying to redeem the world. Radically trying to redeem the world. So Jesus comes to the, to the church in Smyrna and says, listen, we're on opposite pages here. There's a whole alternate perspective. Now, we've talked about God's perspective. It's all about salvation. It's all about moving in, in our world. It's all about being redemptive. It's all about, hey, God's wanting to do a phenomenal thing in our midst. Open our eyes, which is interesting. You'll look at the flat tires of your life altogether different. Seriously. You'll look at financial trouble altogether different. You'll look at, so we, we talk about this. We just figured that when we became Christians, life would just automatically just be peachy. Altogether different, you'll look at things in your life. Now, I'll go back with me to uh, chapter 2. I want to talk to you just really quickly about the perspective that they're in. Okay? I want you to look at the perspective that they're in. Again, some people look at, well, Jeremiah, okay, you know, hey, okay, I understand they're not in God's perspective. He wants to change their perspective. But it's pretty radical to say that they're living in a satanic perspective. Okay, it's pretty radical. Because you can actually chalk up some of this as, well, they just got carried away with their emotions. Well, they just got carried away with this, that, and the other. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about uh, those who are Jews... They, the Jews think they're serving God, by the way. They're of a synagogue of Satan. Let me give you a better one. I want you to see this with your own, your own eyes. I want you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. This is a powerful passage. We were here earlier this week. In chapter 16, uh, you have some significant things taking place. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now, folks, you need to hear me on this. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, which means he believes. Jesus even affirms that, hey, Peter, is, I've chosen you. You're in. Would you believe me that you could get this? Would you believe me if I told you that you could actually love Jesus, come to church, and still live with a satanic perspective? Peter loves Jesus with all his heart. He doesn't serve the enemy. He belongs to God. He's in. Has a satanic perspective. You say, how do you know that? He literally declares Jesus as the Christ. And then you come down into verse 21 of chapter 16. From that, time on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Look what Peter does. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus doesn't look at him and say, now, Peter, you're just getting carried away with your emotions. I know you love me. Peter says, you've drifted into a satanic thought process, Peter. He literally says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> satanic. Peter's not serving Satan. Peter loves Jesus. In fact, he's trying to serve Jesus out of the wrong perspective. See, Peter's drifted into, are you, are you processing that? You're all giving me the same look. He's drifted into a satanic thought process, man. Do you know how scary that is? That there, there are apparently two ways to look at things. That if I go to my job every day 
and I don't recognize myself as someone who's been literally called to partner with him and I've been put there for a reason and operating the posture and living it and I go there wrapped up in my own little world and we've all done that. See, I don't think the enemy would, I don't think the enemy comes and tries to get you to serve him. He just doesn't want you to go to work. What does he do? The same thing he did to Adam and the same thing he tried to Jesus. Just here's another alternate perspective. Hey, Peter, he's going to go and do this. He's trying to prevent the cross. He doesn't say, Peter, serve me. Jesus is going to go kill himself, serve me. Doesn't do that. Just Peter, here's an alternate perspective. And Jesus immediately latches onto that. He latches onto that. Jesus, it's interesting, tells the, uh, tells the crowd, tells the uh, Smyrna, Church of Smyrna, him who overcomes. I believe there's a Christian perspective of what it means to overcome, and then there's a satanic understanding of what it means to overcome. The Christian perspective of overcoming is not always fame and glory in a church that runs a thousand. You say, are you sure? Jesus, after three years, had a church of about 120. One of the board members betrayed him and had him crucified. The people that he came to save nailed him to a cross. He overcame. Because it's God's plan. And anything else would have been a satanic perspective. The biggest thing the enemy tempts me with is it's not bad stuff. I shouldn't do this. I was really moved today by your son. They come and see me at Barnes and Nobles, and, and uh, he shared with me. And I won't tell the details of it. He shared with me some of the details of a big, huge guy that uh, battered him up really bad. I, have a, I was a little kid in high school, um, five, seven, five, eight and a half, weighed about 105 pounds. I matured late. I didn't go through puberty until I was uh, probably 16, 17 years old. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, but uh, I was a little kid in high school. Um, I grew all the way up until I was 23. So, I, yeah, I've asked the Lord, what, what were you doing? I said, I, I, don't, I still don't know. But I was this little kid that got picked on in school. And um, I got bigger. And I've had a soft spot in my heart for kids and people that get picked on. And uh, I've always been the guy that sees that uh, before I was a Christian, see someone getting picked on. And uh, I just, I'd walk over and just, you know, just <laughs> help the people, you know. <laughs> that's literally what I did. I mean, just, that's what I did. And um, I've, I've had that, I really struggle with that. I really struggle with that. I was... Um, I was just a couple years ago. I was in I was in Indianapolis, and uh, this uh, talking. With, I was at, popped at this light, and I was lost. And I lean out the window, and I had this before we had the bus. I had my big red truck, and um, I lean out this lady, and I said, "Where is Barnes and Noble or something?" I don't. I was going somewhere, and the light turned green, and she looked forward, and she goes, "Take a left, and then a right, and it's on your left." And we was in rush rush hour bumper to bumper traffic. Where I mean, basically, we pulled around and stopped again, so it wasn't a big deal. The guy behind her, slightly overweight, short guy, sitting in his car, just lays on the horn, just screaming, 
calling her. She isn't a convertible. He's calling her everything, you know. And it just, something inside of me was like, <laughs> I mean, really, I was hot. And I turned around and looked at that guy, and he's telling me I'm number one. <laughs> and uh, we pull over. We pull over and dead stop traffic, hit another light. And I put, my, I put it in park. And it was just, it was, it was reaction. And uh, I see him leaning over, and he turns his mirror, and he locks his door. Okay? <laughs> And it took everything in me not to go over and minister to that man <laughs> with the laying on of hands. <laughs> and I tell you, here, honestly, Jesus said, Jeremiah, in that moment, it was a God-ordained moment, which is why I still remember it. He says, let me present you with another alternative. It's, you can go over and, and, and you, know, you, could really, you could really teach that guy a lesson. And I bet you went over and pounded him a little bit. You know what I would happen, Jeremiah? Jesus said, I bet Jeremiah would send him and go, wow, I see the light. Man, I will never do that again. Praise him. Man, that's going to be great. I'll never yell at anybody again. And do you think that's the case? Because the problem in his life is not physical. It's, and I could beat that guy to the pulp. It's not going to change him. It's going to make me feel a lot better. It's not going to make, it's going to change him. Seriously, it's not going to change him at all. And Jesus said, and I, and I look at that out of the light of this study. Literally, this study has opened up my past and said, Jeremiah, that was, I have, I have literally had Robin Hood kind of circumstances in my life that I have acted upon that have been satanic deals. It's satanic. That's how he thinks. See, that's what he tempts me with. See, that's where he attacks me. I'm telling you, I, 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 I want to live in the perspective that he's given me. And I was moved today. And my first response was, let that guy walk in the Barnes and Noble. You know, hey, you're into just jumping people and beating people up. That's satanic. That's satanic. I see it every day when we go to the gym. My brother and I went to the gym this morning. You see him walking around in the gym going... And I'm not just talking about you either. I'm talking, I mean, they're walking around just because you can't help it. But I mean, you know, these guys, it's satanic. It's this is what men look like. I walked over in the Barnes and Noble section today. I went over to the men's section. You know, I'm on the phone. I was going to grab a magazine. What are men in our culture into? Naked people, basically. That's all it was. That's all it was. That's what men are into. That's a satanic perspective of sexuality. Jesus comes and says, hey, there's a whole different perspective. See, he has a satanic perspective of finances and a Christian perspective of finances. See, there's a satanic perspective of people, and then there's a Christian perspective of people. We've got to quit. I want to ask you tonight, just, I don't know your lives. I can't go into each one of your lives and, and, and apply this, but I'm wondering... Where are you living in a satanic perspective? And my first thought, this is the very first time I've ever presented this to a church. My first thought has been, I would present this and someone in the crowd would stand up and go, <gasps> because they, would, they felt like I felt. Overwhelming guilt. Not where God's beating me over the head, but just staggering revelation that what I thought was good that what I thought was doing the right thing was not the right thing. See, what I thought was, was not. 
And I believe that's how every one of the disciples felt. That's how every one of them felt. I don't, I don't want to be, I don't, everybody has emotions. I don't want them to rule my life anymore. Everybody has a sex drive. I don't want it to rule my life. Everybody needs money. I don't want it to rule my life. See, I, I, don't, I don't want to live, Jeremiah Bullock here, I, I don't want to live in a satanic perspective. I don't. I want to live like she was talking about. I want to live in a constant attitude of bring about what you do. And, and my, see, my biggest problem is not getting out there and doing my best. I, my problem is, is I'm getting out there too much and doing what I want to do. I'm under the impression that if I would just stop and let him have his way, my life would be unbelievably just marked, characterized by the moving of Jesus. Jesus, we love you tonight. Um, it's a heavy blow for us people who've been here every single night who love you to have it laid in our lap that the possibility that we have thought and lived in league with the enemy, not because we're bad or evil, but we just, we just drifted from you. It was devastating. I, I, I always wondered why you were so critical of Peter. I, did, I knew he wasn't filled with Satan. I guess I just always thought that maybe Satan was standing right beside his ear, and maybe he was. Peter wasn't evil. He just... Satan presented him with an alternate perspective of what Jesus was saying. And he knew Peter's weakness, his emotions, and Peter latched onto it. God, I ask in your, in your name, in the name of your son, I ask that you would open my eyes and unveil those attacks of the enemy. Because he, right, he knows right where to stick them to me. He knows my appetites that aren't bad. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We're not going to tarry long tonight. But uh, I, I see a lot of teens in these days that aren't bad and aren't evil. But they're just wrapped up into things that he's not wrapped up in. Football takes priority over Jesus. Volleyball takes priority over Jesus. Being cool, being good looking, being popular, being accepted takes priority over Jesus. Those things are not bad. But let, I would like to present to you an alternate perspective of being a teenager in this day and age, that God has a plan for your life. What would happen if you would run after Jesus like the whole world runs after the opposite sex at your age? It's an alternate perspective. The sense of entitlement that I think your generation, that people push on your generation. What if you had an alternate perspective of your life? Teens, I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight, and, and I do. I want you to give, give you the opportunity to come down and kneel before Jesus and say, hey, open my eyes. These are crucial years in my life. The enemy wants to snatch me up. I'm setting patterns in my life, and, and these are formative years. And Jesus, I want you to give me the correct perspective. I believe perhaps there are some in here this evening that have been at some time in their life abused, whether mentally, sexually, whatever. See, the biggest the, mo the biggest, the most critical damage in your life has been the alternate perspective that the enemy has given you of yourself. That you're cheap, or that you're dirty, or that you're damaged, 
or that you're violated, I just, I have got phenomenal news for you. I have got an alternate perspective for you tonight. You are beautiful beyond description. You belong to him. And you don't have to live with that perspective anymore. I mean, imagine what an alternate perspective would do to your self-esteem, to your job situation, your family circumstances. I got an alternate perspective for you tonight. His name is Jesus. I want to give you the opportunity not to just sit in your seats, but maybe you need to respond. Would you, would you respond tonight? If you're tired of living and he's revealing to you maybe some perspective you've been in, I want to give you the opportunity to respond tonight. And uh, come down and, and kneel before him and say, Jesus, I, I don't want to live the way that I've always lived. I'm not bad and I'm not evil. And I can say that of myself. I'm not an evil person. I just, I've been duped by the enemy with the wrong perspective. And I want to respond tonight. Would you come? Would you respond? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around. Let's, let's seek together for this last service a few moments and then... Uh, we'll come together and, and we'll pray in a few moments.